I'll open this up with uh, our reading today. It's, it's Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chirdolaomer, something like that, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take the, bread, uh, take the thread or the sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. One, two. Can you hear me? Good morning. Cutter, you had your Wheaties this morning. So, welcome. If you guys haven't, welcome uh, Tommy back. Um, also, I believe yesterday was their eleventh uh, year uh, wedding anniversary for Tommy and Sarah. So, give them a hug or uh, offer babysitting or something. Something nice. So, uh, like Tommy said, my name is Sam, Samuel. In high school, I had the nickname Sam Money, Sam Money, which was really not a nickname because I was the only one who was calling myself that. So, but I, I, yeah, it was a very, okay. So, a little bit about me, Um, I'm South Korean. Uh, but I am American citizen, just in case anybody was wondering. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, two kids, two beautiful boys. Uh, one name's Eli. Uh, he turned four October, and the other one is about 18 months old, I believe. And uh, my wife is uh, Kizia. She's from uh, originally from St. Lucia as well. So uh, one of the things that I think I had to change about myself was that I had to stop being such a klutz with the babies. Because it's not like an Apple product where you break it like, hey, you know, fix my screen. You can't do that with a baby. You know, it's, you can't do that. So uh, I, I had to learn um, to be more careful with children, learn how to hold my babies. And, you know, after a while, they're strong enough and um, they can get a little bump and you're okay, but I, was, I used to get freaked out when it was like even one feet and Eli would hit his head and I'll get a light on his eyes just to make sure he didn't have a concussion. And it was, it's a true story. So, um, but, but seriously, I, w- I was really uh, of a klutz uh, about, this was back in 2006, I believe, 2006. I don't know, so the, several years ago. It was a Christian camp, and 
I was talking to my friend. A session was going on. A service was going on, and and a friend came, and her sister got attacked about a few weeks ago. So I haven't seen her, and I wanted to talk to her. And me and my other friends wanted to talk to her, even though there was a session going on. And she was showing us, yeah, like you know, our our dad was so concerned and paranoid that gave all the all of us uh, pepper sprays. So I said, oh, cool. I've never seen a pepper spray. Can I see it? And I start playing with it, and I, I totally f- didn't realize it, but there was a girl, who, uh, one of the camp counselors wanted to give uh, her testimony uh, in the service. She was so nervous about it. They sort of came out in the outside uh, in a terrace type of area, and about 20 or so camp counselors were sort of praying for her, you know, sort of let God speak to her. So I was about 20 feet away, and I'm just playing with this pepper spray, and I just did a little kick. You know, just a little, little thing. I just wanted to see what it was. So anyhow, 20 seconds later, I see all these people coughing and choking. And like one girl, I, for real, one girl screamed out, oh my God, it's the devil. And I was like, so uh, for a moment, I was kind of confused because it, it, it took about a little while for, I guess, the wind to travel that way. And... Um, I had, I mean, I had witnesses. I couldn't be like, hey, you know, I don't know what, it's the devil. I can't say that, you know. I had to like, I had to be like, um, it was me, guys. I'm so sorry. But they were were very nice to forgive me after running water in their eyes and stuff, so. Anyhow, so I I can't be any around sharp objects. I can't be around any pepper sprays, especially with our children. So this morning, (laughs) just a little bit about me. So, uh, but I... I'm not not as accident-prone as I used to be, so that was my accident testimony. Okay, so this morning, we're just going to go over Genesis 14, and to summarize briefly, for some reason, I can't control the slides, so if someone can control the slides back there. Uh, To summarize briefly, there's a powerful alliance of kingdoms that came and invaded Canaan, four kings and five kings. The names are, I I really hope that Tommy would have uh, said in the beginning and pronounce the names because I have difficulty with these names. It's like you have to go to a special school for these names. But um, basically, a powerful alliance of kingdoms came, invaded Canaan, where where, uh, sort of Abram was. Well, not really, but Abram's nephew was. Took Lot, Abram's nephew. Uh, Abraham took his people, rescued Lot in the middle of of the night and his family, and received the blessing from a mysterious king, priest, Melchizedek, king of Salem. So there's a lot of, that was just very briefly, but there's a lot of interesting bits and pieces here and that we will focus on more on Melchizedek and what this narrative is all about. It's interesting, though, that this is a very different Abraham than what we've seen in the previous two chapters. If you remember, at chapter 12, there was this man, this Abraham was a man who lied about his wife. Hey, you know, like, can you, when we go to Egypt, since you're so hot, and I don't want to get killed. And Tommy talked about this very extensively. You know, I'm going to say we're siblings. Is that cool? You know, I can't imagine saying that to my wife or, you know, your, your spouse. You know, like, what? You know, like, did Abraham think in his mind that because the promise of the blessing was so strong that he just, he was going to have his wife back in some way or if he was going to, blessing was to continue in some way? You know, so you have to think that this Abraham just believed in God and he'll bring his wife back. 
Um, but, sorry, Abraham just seems very different than how he did. In chapter 14, where he goes out, does a night attack, wearing ancient camouflage or whatever he does, and it's, it just seems very brave of him. And maybe within these last few chapters, there was few encounters that God has spiritually matured him. And sort of he, his faith grew in God. Now, the bigger story here is from Genesis chapter 1 to 11. Just stretching out a little bit, right? Broad strokes. Genesis chapter 1 to 11 has twofold purposes. First is to challenge the other ancient Near Eastern belief systems, right? Tommy talked about it extensively as well. If you haven't heard it, go back from the uh, beginning of Genesis 1 session. Number two... It's to give an account of humanity's moral failure. Sin enters the world and it spreads very rapidly. And something has to happen. So in chapter 12, we start to see the sin problem being addressed. And it appears that a solution is being offered, which is the story of Abraham. With the promise of becoming a great nation. God's covenant with him and his promise to bless all the families of of the earth through him. That's how the story of Abram began in chapter 12, if you remember. So the battle of the kings, remember I talked about you know, um, the five kings and the four kings, and they're fighting, this is in, in chapter 14 now. It's almost like Abram just could not get a break. I mean, he receives this incredible blessing promise of making him into a great nation, but then he had to leave his home to a land unknown. God didn't even tell him where he, sh- he would be going. Secondly, his wife could not bear a child. She physically could not in their old age. Okay, there it is. I mean, I, when he received the blessing, I, I believe Abraham was about 75 years old. I mean, we would think about coll- collecting social security, if it's still there, um, taking cruises, volunteering at an animal shelter. I don't know. Whatever the, you know, older couples do to sort of kick back and taste sort of their reward of their life's work. But not for Abram. It's like he's starting from scratch again. And not having children is very difficult to see. God's promise. How is he going to make Abraham into a great nation when he does not even have a child? And then his... His nephew Lot, pain at times, if you guys remember the previous chapter, Abram graciously gave Lot first pick after, remember, their shepherds and people had dispute over the land, and uh, Abram said, hey, listen, you know, just pick whichever land you want, I'll go in the other way, it'll be cool, and, and Lot chose um, the Jordan Valley, really good real estate, at first glance, but we realize what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of it down the road. But Abraham chooses the land of Canaan, and then Lot got into trouble by being taken as a captive. It's not Abraham would be against one powerful king, but an alliance of four kings, and I think it would be safe to say that any man would have been dismayed regarding the promise of God into making him into a great nation. So the four kings wanted to control the land, of Canaan by subjugating the five kings and the kingdoms and tribes or whatever. Some scholars believe that the reason for controlling this is actually because of trade of Mesopotamia and uh, Egypt. Uh, Either way, this is probably actually the first war I believe recorded in the Bible. 
And due to their treaties, when one king, there had to be alliance. You couldn't just be one solo king out there uh, by yourself at this time, at least. That's what we're seeing. Uh, There's confederates. They went with him and joined him in the battle. Um, And it appears that because of this war, because of the western city-states rebelled against the other tyrant king, meaning that they probably did not send gifts or tributes or whatever, you know, sort of like a bully deal, give me your lunch money and I won't hurt you, that sort of type of mindset. And king of Sodom and others were just tired of it, went out, got into a battle, lost, and the enemy took Lot and everything else, and slaves including. So everyone, Abraham hears this from someone who barely escaped and tells Abraham about Lot. And Abraham does something that's very strange. He does something that's kind of unthinkable from what we've seen in his previous cowardly practices with lying about his wife to the Pharaoh. He takes 318 trained men and does a surprise night attack. That took some strategy. That took some thinking. That took some plan of action. But that took a lot of boldness and courage. For me, it's kind of insane because, I mean, I'm thinking he would be somewhere in the late 70s or 80s by now. And picturing someone in that age range, I don't know, maybe things were different then, I don't know. But imagine someone of that age leading a small army uh, into battle at night. So Abraham could have lost his life, maybe missed out on the promise of God, or maybe he was just very confident that nothing would happen to him. Either way, I think there was this possessiveness of how Abraham felt about Lot and wanted to make sure that Lot and his family was safe. There's other risk involved. You've got to think about this. In the ancient world, retaliations were common. So there's no way of saying after Abraham kicks their butts that nobody's going to come after them. Grievance, stories of grievance and stories of, of battles lost and, 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 and um, just the sense of revenge and was passed down from generation to generation, children to children. They would tell stories of, you know, this tribe did this or blah, blah, blah. And there's this hate that's sort of passed on, right? So there's definitely risk that's involved. But after defeating the kings... King of Sodom and Melchizedek, king of Salem. So two kings come out and meet him. So let's talk about Melchizedek. He's an international man of mystery. There's various theories of who he is. It's very interesting. There's lots of speculation. It's an old tradition among Jews that he was actually Shem, son of Noah who may have survived this time. And if that was the case, he would have been at least 465 years old. I think you can move to the next one. Uh, back. I don't know why I chose this. I chose this like two in the morning, but it reminded me of Christmas. So they look very European back there. Okay. I, just a quick side note. I just found out. I mean, I didn't watch 21 Jump Street, but there was actually Korean Jesus in there. So I was, I was like just Googling stuff, and I'm like, I stumbled on Korean Jesus. And yeah, just side note. Okay. So Melchizedek, you can to the next slide. 
Now, Melchizedek, um, if, he, if he was, according to some of the Jewish traditions, the son of Noah, I mean, he would have at least been 465 years at the time. Um, there's also other interesting uh, fragments um, uh, that's dated back in 2nd uh, or start of the 1st century B.C., uh, about the text of Melchizedek that was found in Qumran, in, um, in the Dead Sea area, right? With the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then in this, as, in this uh, sacred text, Melchizedek is seen as a being, as a divine being, right? And there's Hebrew titles like Elohim is applied to him. And according to this text, Melchizedek will proclaim the Day of Atonement and he will atone for the people who are predestined to him. He also will judge the peoples. So it's very interesting because it sounds like Jesus, and without doubt, there are a lot of speculations everywhere, but lots of interesting material out there about Melchizedek. Christians, some, some Christians say that he was indeed Jesus Christ, sort of making a quick guest appearance. It's called Christophony. Christophony? Christophony? Thank you. Someone said that. And it's interesting to know that Malak in Hebrew actually means king. Zedek means righteousness or justice. So he, he and Salem, right, Jerusalem, uh, and Shalom means peace. So he was also the king of peace. And we see that in Hebrews uh, sort of argued out as well. So I believe it's far more likely, it's really no sense in arguing, but I mean, I believe it's far more likely that Melchizedek was a Canaanite royal priest whom God used to renew and remind the promise of the blessing of Abraham. I mean, Melchizedek remains still a very much of an enigma. And, and the reason for that is because Ge- Genesis is filled with genealogies and there's none about him. He just appears and disappears. Only to appear again uh, in another part very briefly in Old Testament and a little more extensively in in the the book of Hebrews, the New Testament. So, uh, let's look at Hebrews real quickly. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is the first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, some may think that the whole fatherlessness, sorry, not fatherlessness, just being fatherless, and motherless have no genealogy talk, or this is what it was arguing for, it's just that point, but I don't, think it, I don't think it was any of that above. It's very unlikely that the writer of Hebrew was trying to point uh, to, to him not having an origin in a way. I think the argument was actually bigger. And in Hebrews, if you guys uh, read and studied it, I mean, you guys would understand. Uh, and we'll get into it a little bit. I think Melchizedek is introduced in the story, first in the Abraham, as a priest of God Most High without any mention being made of where he got his priesthood from, right? That's very partic- peculiar. Uh, but more specifically, whether he obtained his inheritance from his family, there's no mention of his priesthood, just, just no birth, no death, 
you know, in this story, it's like something like he was a permanent fixture to some degree. Like he's always been there. And you have to remember for the Jews, priesthood was something that was initiated by Aaron, right? Brother of Moses. So it seems very out of place to have a priest that we do not see the origin of because for all we know, Abraham was the only person within that area that was worshiping the true God. So this is very peculiar for us. All right, uh, moving on to verse 11 in Hebrew chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood, for under, if the, it, for under it the people received the law, what further, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a, a necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe of Moses, said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrew is trying to sort of bring Jesus in terms of superiority regarding Moses, regarding angels, regarding Abraham, and all the above. That all of this, what we see in the in um, in the Old Testament, sort of points to Jesus. That's sort of uh, sort of the argument of the writer of the Hebrew. But the question is, why would there need to be a change in priests unless there was a change in laws? as argued in verse 12. And for the Jewish audience, it just doesn't make sense to talk about Jesus who is a Messiah and also a priest. Why would that be important? Why would that be important? Because Jesus came and there was this upheaval to the way of sacrifice, of worship, everything else. It's pretty radical change we're just talking about here. Even in the way we think about God. So the author of Hebrew goes further back before Aaron and talk about Melchizedek, this mysterious priest king who blessed Abram before Moses was and argued that from verse 7, that inferior is blessed by the superior, talking about Melchizedek blessing Abraham, right? So think about it. In order to talk about Christ of a new priestly order, you have to go beyond Moses and beyond Abraham, the first one to be circumcised. Now, looking at Hebrew, we're seeing that Jesus is a priest and king. The writer of Hebrew is actually echoing someone else, an old prophecy from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change in mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see that? In a sense, Psalms give us this idea that the order of Melchizedek was there before the Levites and will replace the old system. The old system was just a band-aid on a cancer. Here comes Jesus. I mean, this is considered a messianic prophecy, right? In verse 1, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, and speaking of Jesus, and what's helpful to know that David himself 
Even though he was actually a king, he actually led in some worship, if you remember. Joined the procession, offered sacrifice, even wearing priestly ephod. I don't have it all written out, but you can look at it and no, go back a little bit. Yeah, 2 Samuel 6, 12, verse 19. You can look at it later. Or you can look at it now. Whatever, up to you. You have so many choices. So, in Hebrew, the writer talks about Melchizedek not having a mother and father. Is that really the case? Or is that really the point? No, that's not the point that the writer's trying to make. The, the writer's trying to talk about Jesus threading carefully the story of Melchizedek and David to show the significance of Jesus. So how is this connection made between the promise of Abraham and Jesus? Let's go back to the big picture. All right, let's go back to Genesis and allow me to make a few points. The big picture is God's promise to Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in him, oh sorry, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's interesting to know that in chapter 13, God references... References about having numerous offspring like dust. God does it again in chapter 15, using stars and how numerous Abraham's offsprings will be. Do you see it, the overarching narrative? The stuff that happens after Genesis chapter 12, it's not just accidental fluff. It's not just some, something that you know, just happened in Abraham's life. From the Pharaoh to going war to the kings. Here is God purposely showing to the world, showing to Abraham that God favors him and is blessing him. God's promise is starting to come alive. And Melchizedek speaks blessing to Abraham Reminding him that God truly blessed him and will use him to make a great name and bless all the families of the earth. I remember I used to read that. I'm like, what does that mean? How will we, me, you, be blessed by Abraham? The answer is Jesus. It seems very obvious, right? We could ask Sunday school and most of the time, like, Jesus... Paul writes this out in Galatians chapter 3. In verse 16, he says, Now the promise were made to Abraham and to his offsprings. It does not say two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The seed of Abraham, we are all blessed with Jesus. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. So Abraham had full confidence about this. 
And after returning from defeating the kings and rescuing Lot, he breaks bread with Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes out, does communion right there. And it's very interesting because unlike most Canaanites, here's a guy who serves the true God, and he receives a blessing from Melchizedek, and Abraham gives tenth of everything. Now look at this. It's interesting. King of Sodom, the first word that comes out of his mouth is, give me. Right? Melchizedek blesses. The first word that comes out of King of Sodom is, give me. Give me, my people, and you can take the possession for yourself. Almost like, hey, I'm going to do you a favor. But Abraham does something unusual. He refuses the gift. Why? Why would he refuse free stuff? So that the king of Sodom can never try to take credit for Abraham's prosperity. What God is already enacted and doing in Abraham's life. He really believed in the blessing that God promised him. Let me, let me tell you a story real quick. And a story of Jesus healing a blind man in John chapter 9. I believe we have the slide for that. One day Jesus heals a blind beggar. He spits into the ground and made mud, and then he, anoint, he anointed the eyes, asking him to wash it in the pool, and he was healed. He could see. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received the sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such a signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. I don't have from verse 18, but I'll read because it, it was just too much to put in there. So just enjoy my voice. The Jews, from, this is from verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? Who do you say was born blind? Well, how then does he now see? His parents answer, well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. You ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, talking about Jesus. And he answered, well, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind, now I see. They said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? You see what he's doing there? Roughing up some feathers. And they 
And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he came from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind man who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Well, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And did they cast him out? The story ends with Jesus. When Jesus heard that they had cast him out, having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, well, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he is And he worshiped them. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Pharisees had this rule. Because we already knew you can't work on Sabbath. You have to keep it holy, right? Moses said that or brought it, brought in, initiated it or implemented it. But Pharisees also had a rule about not spitting because everybody knows if you're spitting up in a hill and it rolls, you're making mud. And if you're making mud, you're working. So you can't spit on the Sabbath because then you'll be working. Yeah, you think they they sort of missed the point on that one, right? So knowing this, Jesus actually purposely heals a man on the Sabbath by making mud. With a saliva. However, the religious leaders were just too caught up with the technicalities and just were, they could not see. They were the blind ones. They were the blind ones. A few chapters before this, in John chapter 5, Jesus heals another man during the Sabbath. And the, the religious leaders were very fierce with him. In verse 39, Jesus actually says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In another translation, it says, You search the scriptures to find eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Now, some people miss the whole point of the Bible. What does it look like to really engage and enjoy God? I mean, it's like, it's like there's people that always make it to bring it back to Jesus because that's the grand narrative, this overarching narrative. All about this, the story of Melchizedek, story of Abraham, it's all foretold for Jesus. You search to find eternal life, but they point to me. So that's the story. That's the story of Melchizedek. It's not something that's just fabricated. It's not something that's made up. Basically, the whole Bible is ultimately designed to point to him. And if we can't get that, we miss the point. We miss Jesus. Many times when we read the Gospels, we don't necessarily think of ourselves as the Pharisees. 
We don't think of us as the religious ones. We have few people in our mind, maybe. They're so legalistic. Oh, my gosh. Or whatever. We're all religious. There's religion in every one of our hearts. In one degree or another. I've had experience with like, I'm sure you guys had too, like whether you're the one giving advice and you know in your head, like, man, this is like really good godly advice. Or you're hearing someone else who's, you know, older and wiser giving advice, but they are just not hearing it. They can't hear it. Their hearts are stubborn. Their hearts are hardened. This morning, I want you guys to ask yourselves, Is there any part of my heart where it's really hardened toward God? Something that you just don't want to let go. Is there a part of me where I just refuse to recognize Jesus as Lord? It's very easy to go through the motions, isn't it? When the song's really that good, it's very easy to get into it. to get into the culture, to get into the spirit. But what about Monday through Friday, Saturday nights, whatever? How do you worship and how do you recognize the Lord in your life? We're going to do communion now. But before we do the communion, I just want to stay silent for just a few minutes. Even those who are serving communion. And allow God Ask God, is there any part, because, again, it's the blindness. You can't see it. You know, you you ever, like, had a friend, and he's about to go out, and you ask him, hey, is there anything wrong? And they couldn't really see that there was, like, a booger in the nose. That sort of a deal. What are some of the, the places in your heart that God is pointing to? I want you guys to be able to stay silent. Silent your mind and ask God, what are you trying to say to me? Amen? So let me just pray for you guys real quickly. And then, as I said, let's stay silent for a little bit. No music. Just a few minutes. I know it can be awkward and uncomfortable at times, but let that break the barrier of your hearts. So, Father God, I just want to thank you, Lord, for this morning. I just want to thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives already. We just want to declare you sovereign. And there's times where maybe we just don't want to recognize your doings, your favor, your action in our lives. I ask you, O Father, to soften our hearts, to... remove the veils, to remove the walls. I pray, O Father God, that we would be able to have a faith like Abraham and able to trust you with everything, with everything in our lives. And that we recognize you, Jesus, as Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.